1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm honored to welcome Chagai Boaz to our microphones today to discuss his thought-provoking new book, The Political Economy of Organ Transplantation, Where Do Organs Come From? Chagai Boaz is a sociologist of health, and an organ recipient himself. He's the director of the Science, Technology, and Society unit at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute and an adjunct senior lecturer at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Chagai Boaz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. i
0: I'm happy to be here.
1: You are intimately familiar with the topic of your book. You received a kidney transplant when you were very young, at a time when the field of organ transplantation was also young, at least in Israel. Tell us about that. Yes, I was one of
0: the, let's say, first group of kids in 1986 who received a kidney in Israel. It was at, uh, at Bellinson Hospital, that was this, the name of the hospital that day, uh, those days. Um, Uh, Two weeks after my bar mitzvah, I was hospitalized hospitalized together with my father, who donated me his kidney uh, in what uh, was then uh, a pioneer operation uh, in Israel. Uh, It was actually a choice between starting a dialysis, uh, the therapy that replaces organ transplantations by... Actually, um, been a, a substitute for a kidney, uh, an artificial substitute, or to undergo what was then quite a pioneer and breakthrough operation, uh, at least in Israel, um, I remember the that there were no, there was no even uh, transplantation unit back then. We were hospitalized at the end of the urological uh, department ward at the balance unit with two chambers two hospitalization chambers me and my father uh he was then younger than i am now and now that i have my own children i can totally understand the commitment to save your own child with even with a new uh therapy that it was not experimental at that day, at those days, but it was still very, very little unknown. Um, and uh, the hospitalization was rather long, uh, but actually it saved my life. And it, the kidney survived for additional 13 years until I was 26 and then it failed.
1: Let, let's stay with your childhood for just another moment, because uh, generally, children don't like to be different from their peers. They don't like to stick out. They don't like to be odd. So what was it like for you, a child, first of all, with dietary restrictions and and other limitations of chronic illness, and then to be different when you came back after the surgery and had a kidney replaced, what was it like? Tell us a little about the, how that worked with, within your family and within your friends and peer group.
0: Well, the key is, a, is support. And I have a very supportive family. And since my condition was something that I was born with, um, we my parents, which I them so much uh, decided to you know to not to take my condition as the center of my life yes I had my restrictions yes we had uh, I had my own way of living but I was always with uh, you know group of people and children that had no problems at all or at least uh, not my problems, uh, and it was not a secret, but it was not something that I, uh, you know, posted as my uh, my first identity. I tried to to as much as I could to to blend in the in the crowd, to not to not to take this as something that uh, will. Uh, you know, will be the determinant of my overall identity, and I think that was uh, that was something that uh, was very helpful in my uh, youth. Uh, yes, I had my restrictions. I was uh, uh, I had my before the surgery, before the operation. I had, uh, as you mentioned, uh, very strict uh, dietary restrictions. Um, during the year, it was on the eighth grade uh, that I uh, underwent the sur- the surgery, the operation, and I had to stay uh, two or three months at home. And my classmates, my friend, helped me to to fill up the gaps in in school. Um, uh, my friends know knew about my uh, situation, so uh, and also the teachers. Um, um, it was something that uh, uh, I carried, but I did not let that rule my life. Uh, this was a, a bit changed in two, I think, time periods later on. First, at the age of eighteen, uh, Israeli youth are uh, expect are. Uh, recruited to the army and I had a waiver not not to go to the army and I uh, wanted not, I I didn't know what to do actually at the age of 18 if I'm not, what to do now. So I volunteered to serve in the Israeli radio station uh, and this was something that, you know, that my health situation determined more obviously my route in life. And in a later stage of life, uh, after completing my uh, master's degree and planning on doing my Ph.D. uh, in sociology, I was accepted to very prestigious universities in the U.S. but couldn't get any health insurance as being a kidney recipient. Um, actually, without any health res- uh, insurance, I understood that I have to stay to complete my PhD uh, studies here in Israel. And then I think I was old enough and more mature to to take the decision to write about organ transplantation. Uh, it was not just because I thought... Uh, uh, that I want to write about my life. No, the people who, who, who would read the book uh, would find uh, uh, several sections on my life, but I thought that there is a social drama uh, that sociologists are very interested in, in the story of transplant medicine, in, in the answer to the subtitle of my book, Where Do Organs Come From?
1: Now bioethics has struggled and often failed to keep up with medical advances. They seem often to be a few steps behind. Uh, And we see that in a range of areas, in fertility treatment, in surrogacy, genetic modification, end-of-life issues, and I'm sure many others. Um, Even the language we use to discuss these procedures has an impact on the way we think of them ethically and morally uh, and politically, of course. You see it very strongly in the United States, uh, the evolution of the issue of abortion from the 1970s when it was framed as an issue of women's health and safety, uh, protecting them from illegal and dangerous procedures to today's language, which is entirely an issue of pro-life and pro-choice. So talk to us about the role of language and metaphors in organ transplantation. Well, organ
0: transplantation actually fascinates the imagination.
1: Uh, The very
0: practice of, you know, taking an organ from one person and to transplant it in another person uh, blurs the boundaries between self and other, Uh, speaking about the living body of the dead patient in the case of brain dead, uh, that are used uh, as pools for uh, cadaveric organ donations. Uh, The You know, the the, the idea that you can grant life to someone by uh, giving him or her one of your kidneys uh, actually uh, usher us into the world of metaphors and images. uh, And the writing on organ transplantation is sometimes even more enthusiastic to speak about the metaphor of organ transplantations rather than on the practice itself and that i think is perhaps one of the weaknesses of organ transplantation it's appeal to the metaphoric language because uh, organ transplantation becomes then uh, a vehicle to speak on other things on what is, uh, and it could be used in both, uh, uh, um, you know, a way to speak about the evils of heroic medicine Uh, that was the spirit of critical anthropology during the 70s that criticizes transplant medicine for trying to reach for uh, or to stretch the limits beyond the... Uh, what is acceptable or permitted? Kind of uh, conservative attitude, or during the nineties to speak about the uh, evil wrongs or the wrongs doing of capitalism by referring to, traff- to organ trafficking, which is of course an uh, 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 ethical and immoral uh, practice, and uh, but uh, by doing so. I thought that something from the world of organ transplantation is being uh, overlooked. And by using, the, um, by using the metaphoric languages, we are missing the, something essential which takes place in the world of organ transplantation.
1: And that's how you got to the concept of a political economy in your title.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. I thought that uh, I want to focus on the actual ways in, in which organs are being now, what word is is the most suitable? Donated, supplied, obtained. As you mentioned, uh, the very use of the language itself already uh Uh, imply uh, your position, your stance in the field, your ethical perspective on that. So I thought that perhaps the right way is to reverse the methodology. Instead of taking an ethical uh, stance and then reading the field, as we like to call it in social sciences, uh, let's go into the actual uh, uh, reality and to, to, to follow the roots that the organs themselves, if you want, uh, take when they are transferred from one body to another. What are the social institutions that are involved in this uh, journey uh, of the organs that are for... Uh, uh, a certain period of time are detached from their bodies. You speak only of a kidney, a heart, in their, you know, uh, um, wrapped in ice cubes for uh, maintaining their vitality and traveling uh, from one hospital to another hospital or within one hospital, from one body to another. What are the, the ethical, the political, the uh, uh, social meanings that are imbued in those now only organs. And for to answer that, I, uh, I found that organs come from actually three uh, distinct bases, uh, which are the family, the state, or in the case of uh, organ trafficking, the market. And these are the bases that are the actually the template for uh, uh, for political economy, not in organ transplantations, but rather in many fields of welfare provision. In uh, uh, of course in health, but also in education, uh, in other fields of uh, of care and uh, uh, Moreover, there is, even in the classical writing on political economy, in the 19th century, uh, Hegel, in his, uh, I think, one of his last writing, uh, The Philosophy of Right, distinguishes between these three um, categories, the family, the market, and the state, as having different ethical, um, let's say, uh, envelopes, that uh, characterized them. So I thought of these three bases as the template for um, rather more neutral understanding of uh, 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 of a political economy of organ transplantation, neutral in the sense that the morality and the ethical categories are emergent properties from the reality of organ transport transfer and not vice versa it's not that we decide what is right and wrong and then uh decide normatively what is uh uh, appropriate but rather trying to capture the whole picture by referring to the interaction that takes place and the dynamics and the trends of organ supply uh following the following these uh, three bases of political economy.
1: And I'll admit that as a, a reader coming fresh and ignorant to your book, I found it a little unnerving to think about the idea of a market or even a political economy of organs. But you uh, explain the case very clearly. That it's all a function. That's what happens when there's a shortage of something that people really need. Uh, let's dig down a little deeper. Uh, why wasn't it sufficient to have either a global or at least national within nations agreement that that dead people are presumed to give consent? for their organs to be used unless they've taken the trouble to opt out while they were alive. What's wrong with that?
0: Okay, I want just to to, uh, linger a bit about the term economy and the concept of economy. The way that I see transplantation, the reality of transplantation uh, is different from what economists see. Uh, First, as you mentioned, the shortage is the departure point. Uh, Even for myself as an organ recipient who underwent four-time organ transplantations, we know how the whole world is determined by the shortage. And when you see a shortage, such a a massive uh, uh, shortage, uh, it channels you to... Kind of economic thinking, but uh, but here is where I different uh, where I'm different from the classical economist uh, reasoning. Uh, first of all, I agree that it is um, perhaps unfit to speak, you know, in economic cold terms about something which is uh, so. As I said before, so culturally imbued with meanings and 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 fears and and taboos, such as the practice of, of transplant medicine, it's not something that you can bracketed and and think that it's not relevant. So this is a, 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 a first reservation. The second is that the second sorry the second uh, is that uh, uh, you cannot understand. Um, organ transplantation as something which is purely instrumental. It is something uh, or something that behavioral economists can, you know, change the policy and uh, from informed consent to presumed consent and then change the world. Um, and that goes directly to the question. I don't think that, or it's not that I'm do- I don't think data shows that although we know that there are higher um um let's say donation rates in countries that have presumed consent uh default uh, the the reality is that uh at least in most countries informed consent and presumed consent when it gets to the actual donation event when Transplant coordinator, uh, uh, are informed that there is a case of of, of uh, brain death and uh, potential for organ uh, donation. There are they they do approach the family even in presumed consent countries. It's not that they are taking the organs without even uh, you know consulting the family. There is a negotiation, and I think that. That is the right thing to do, uh, for respect and and and, the, uh, and uh, so it, it boils down to the actual reality in the ICUs and the work of the transplant coordinators. Um, so, uh, so that's about the reality or, or how things are taking place in in real life. In, that are not that different between uh, informed and presumed consent. But I have another problem, let's say, uh, with presumed consent models, and that comes from a sociological point of view. The presumed consent model assumes that everyone has um, equal access to medical information. Uh, It uh, assumes that there is no... Issues of suspect or trust, of uh, uh, and there is no problem in registration and and filling up your uh, personal details in uh, governmental or state agency uh, um, register. But we know that this is not the case. We know that minorities. We know that some groups are very hesitant. Uh, in uh, conveying their personal details. Moreover, that information is not equally uh, distributed, and uh, uh, and the the result of that could be that people were would be presumed to be consent with organ donation, although they don't they don't know about that, and they didn't even think about that, and uh, and they didn't register as Non-donors because of other reasons, so it could be uh, quite problematic. Uh, I
1: know your I know your focus is uh, on transplantation, organ transplantation, uh, but would you take a chance and reflect or speculate about why it might be different from a bioethical point of view? for people to sell their blood or their bone marrow, their sperm, their eggs, or to rent, in quotes, their womb to a couple. Uh, it, it, why why is organ transplantation the same or different from these issues?
0: Well, I think that the problem in, uh, it, it could be organ markets or any other, uh, you know, uh, It could be sperm, eggs, and any other. It's not the actual cell of the organ uh, itself. It's not, uh, it's very arbitrary uh, why, uh, you know, uh, sperm is allowed and something else uh, is not. Okay, you have the renewable factor, something that can be renewed, such as, you know, blood uh, and sperm, uh, eggs that's... uh, women uh, in their youth have uh, abundance of. Um, But the actual concern is the circumstances. Uh, um, First of all, uh, um, yes, it's not the same. And since it's not the same organs as other bodily uh, uh, products or or, or bodily uh, organs or tissues or cells, uh the self of organ would be a desperate act of poor people. The inequality involved in such a practice is something uh, that cannot be circumvent in any way. Uh, I don't think that a state can set a price uh, for an organ people who would sell an organ would not settle for that. I often right. ask people, so what do you think for, how many would you sell your kidney? And people say, well, I'm in for organ market. I would sell a kidney if I would get uh, like a $1 million. Well, the reality is no one would pay that sum of money. No one, I mean, no, no uh, formal, you know, not state agency, it's not, in any way uh, reasonable. And in reality, people sell their kidneys for much, 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 much less, hundreds of dollars, few thousands, you know, at the street corner for uh, an organ monitor somewhere in the south uh, part of the world. People do that out of desperation and it's uh, uh, something which is uh, very problematic. But I want to say, when I speak about organ trafficking, and we are all very shocked by the very idea, I want to say something additional. I think that uh, being shocked by the fact that people sell their organs is not enough. I think that uh, without being signed on organ donor card, uh, with uh, by, uh, without uh, doing an effort uh, to fight organ shortage, uh, the, you are actually, uh, perhaps this is a hard work, but I'll use it anyway, a secret accomplice of this unethical uh, practice. Uh, because people do not go to buy organs, uh, you know, out of greed. It's not... Uh, like any other, you know, uh, global chains uh, of of, uh, of uh, you know uh, people who sell or who buy work, um, who buy uh, uh, other th- other services, quote to quote, in the global South. People do that out of desperation because not enough people in their own country uh, donate organs. There is no. Uh, pleasure or fun. And I would say there is even uh, shame in some way, not on the person itself, but on the society that leads people to, to, to buy organs and to sell organs. So it's not an isolated problem that has nothing to do with, uh, you, know, with, 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 your, with you. It's about people who do not donate enough organs.
1: People are most likely to donate as your father did to a family member uh, so tell us about the gender gap uh, and the dynamics of gender organ donation within families and and outside of families if there is a gender gap there too
0: the gender gap in organ donation uh, is uh, evident in uh, both uh, in both uh, organ donation uh, from living person and from deceased donations. In living uh, uh, donation, we can see that there is a majority of uh, uh, of women who donate to men. About 65% take or less 1% or 2%. And this uh, gap is consistent over time and in, pl- in different places around the globe. Uh, the, uh, the most, uh, uh, the most uh, immediate uh, explanation for that is of course the gender roles in the family. Uh, and the fact that the family is the main pool for living donors uh I need to say a word about how the family became such a a, a central pool of dormers. It began with uh, uh, with the fact of genetic proximity between uh, family members, what is called genetically related, uh, which actually uh, um, uh, leads to better outcomes in transplantation. So the family becomes medically, uh, a very uh, immediate pool of, of, of organ donors. Uh, later on, and perhaps we'll touch upon this later in our conversation, uh, the genetic barrier uh, was a bit lowered and enabled expanding the pool of donors beyond the genetic uh, 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 limit to include spouses, uh, friends and even strangers. But the uh, traditional pool is the family, and the family, as in other uh, modes of living, organ donation uh, is totally, um, let's say, something which is not ordered or um, you know can be manipulated, or uh, it reflects the gender roles that uh, we know from the family, in, and especially in issues of health and care where uh, it is the wives, the mothers, the sisters, and the daughters who are expected uh, to help uh, their fathers, brothers, uh, uh, husbands, and uh, uh, sons. So that's one uh, aspect of of the gender gap, uh, which is very evident in the family. Uh, Um, there is a reverse gender gap in deceased organ donation where uh, we witness more men as deceased organ donation. But I think that the focus should be on the family because there we can see very, you know, the power relations that determine the gender gap more clearly than in other uh, um, uh, modes of organ donations.
1: Is there a gender gap among the recipients?
0: Well, yes. In some places, we can see also that it would be uh, more males. As I said, it uh, it is. Uh, we see that in the statistics uh, uh, that are uh, with with control of medical problems, and there is no something that you know uh, make women uh, less uh, 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 less vulnerable. No. Uh, uh, there is no uh, evidence for that. But nevertheless, we see that those in the family, uh, uh, fathers, sons, brothers and husbands receive more than, uh, uh, than women. Uh, and that also correlates to the gender roles and to uh, 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 who's eligible for healing. Uh, and that, but that, that uh, uh, conversely with the, gen- with the gender gap in the side of the donors, that this is, has very uh, different uh, uh, expression between countries and between different time uh, and, and between years. So it's not that evident as in the side of the donors, but nevertheless, it is there. There is a gender gap.
1: You ask a, a very big question in your book. Uh, you ask, how are we to understand life in the age of medical technology? Uh, that refers to the benefits of a procedure, which is only part of the larger question regarding, quote, the condition of life in the age of medical technology. Uh, expand on that. Do you, do you, are you saying that technology will necessarily erode the value of life? Or what What are you really asking and what are your thoughts about that?
0: Um, no, not not necessarily erode the value of life, not at all. Uh, we have to, to remember that uh, we would not have this discussion without the technology of of organ transplant or without the development and the scientific uh, uh, discoveries uh, that led to the flourish of of transplant medicine that actually saved uh, hundreds of thousands of lives during the 70 years it, it existed. But I think as you uh mentioned in the opening of our conversation that technology set challenges to our understanding of what is life and what uh, uh and the worth of life and uh um and what can we do and in that aspect i think that the uh covid-19 pandemic uh is a good illustration at the beginning, or at least uh, in some way, until now, there was some uh, expectation that well, uh, how come that we have we are facing something that technology cannot, uh, technology and science cannot, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, resolve in in uh, in two minutes, and we have to remember that during the the pandemic the effort that science and technology invested in uh you know in uh producing the vaccine and but in uh and before producing the vaccine sequencing the virus would not be possible 10 years ago if or 12 years ago if the pandemic was during the first decade of uh, of this century so no that we have to thank uh uh Technology, but sometimes, and this is the point uh, that I want to make. Although it's uh, achievements and it's success, we perhaps uh, um, think that it could resolve and would would provide uh, us with an answer to everything, and that we have no responsibilities on our lives, and that eventually. Uh, Uh, technology would resolve everything. I think another example could be the um, reproduction medicine uh, in its uh, possibility that it opened uh, uh, for reproducing children uh, in now in more than imaginative way that we ever thought of. Uh, But uh, we Cannot think that it could that that technology reproduction technology technology would grant you or can promise you children. The chances are not uh, the chances of uh, uh, there, there are many things that technology does not that technology together with consumerism and capitalism would not tell you because it wants you to 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 take that. To take that chance, uh, we d- we know that uh, uh, IVF treatments do not promise you higher chances than regular uh, pregnancy, uh, and so on and so forth. Technology, we uh, we take technology to have to to uh, we think of technology higher than it is really is, um, uh, and I'm saying that. As someone who lives thanks to technology, it's not that I'm uh, um, that not I'm not in the side of those who think that uh, technology uh, technology is something that uh, erodes our lives or uh, uh, or is uh, some ill that we need to to you know to avoid from.
1: Finally, Haggai, what impact do you hope your book will have for transplant patients? like yourself and others
0: well I think that um for many years and for a long time uh, organ recipients uh, are bounded in the discursive field of thank you all we can say is thank you for those who saved our lives and donated and of course this is very important uh the subtitle of the book "Where Do Organs Come From?" is not just an it's not just a research question. Is I think is also for organ recipient is also an ethical imperative to acknowledge that organs do not fall from the sky, and that there are people who donated them, and you not you need to to acknowledge uh graceful act. This is one thing. But another thing is that we also have a voice and something to say about uh, the world of transplantation uh, beyond the thank you uh, position. Uh, I think that we do have a specific uh, perspective, living under the threat of constant shortage. The idea that we sometime would have to look for another organ because it's not a one time thing transplantation the body cannot trick the the we cannot no it's we cannot trick the body for so long the body eventually rejects the organ and then we are back in the grim reality of shortage what does it mean to live under this constant shade, state of organ shortage, Uh, uh, I think that uh, the book provides uh, both an empirical, analytical answer, but also something from my own experience as someone who underwent uh, 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 the four transplants and confronted with this unanswered question, how how to get an organ. Uh, um, I think that is something I would like uh, more people to understand.
1: Well, your book makes a very good case, and I hope many people read it. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Chagai, and for sharing your experiences and your analyses of this vital issue. We wish you continued good health. Thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.